The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. So if you haven't figured it out, the Montgomery School had a musical this weekend. (laughs) And by next Sunday, hopefully this space will be about 100% less castle, uh, probably only about 70% less glitter because we know how glitter works, so... Oh, and I can't explain why the uh, projector is on the fritz. I'm blaming that on daylight savings. So, When we are confused, when we feel like we can't find our way, there are a lot of questions that are common for us to ask. When we feel like we're moving through difficult times, cloudy skies, just looking for away, right, to illuminate, to show us which way to go. I remember when I was in my early 20s. I had just graduated from college. I grew up in King of Prussia nearby. I went to college in Delaware County, and then I moved to Washington, D.C. And that was a culture shock for me. I had a co-worker at the nonprofit where I worked. We were about the same age. And both of us were new transplants to city life. She'd grown up in a suburb in Virginia. But we were encountering all these things for the first time. Some of them were just kind of city inconveniences, I'll call them, right? Like, what do you do when somebody illegally saves a parking spot on a crowded street? How, how, what's the neighborly etiquette for that? There's probably a picture of a, ooh, is this the, there it is. High chair, folding chair. That's a very Philly thing. They did that in D.C. too. Or what do you do when you're living in an apartment building for the first time and you can't sleep because the upstairs neighbor has parties going on every week until 2 a.m.? But we were also encountering more serious questions. Like how should we respond when we encounter neighbors of ours who live on the streets? It was not foreign to either of us completely, but now it wasn't just once in a while that we had that moral dilemma, it was every single day, on the way to work, in the bus shelters, in the subways. And that last question prompted us to ask someone who we trusted, our boss, a woman we respected tremendously named Dr. Gloria. Dr. Gloria was a native of New York City who then moved to D.C. and had lived in the city for decades. She ran the program that we worked for, and back then we thought she knew everything. She was probably my age now when I think about it, <laughs> maybe in her early 40s. But my coworker and I started joking with each other that whenever we had a moral dilemma, we would just ask ourselves, what would Dr. Gloria do? But when we actually worked up the courage one day to ask her about this issue about this situation, how we should respond when we were asked for money or food from a stranger. She did not tell us what to do. Instead, she asked us more questions. She asked us, what do you think you should do? Where did that idea come from? What do you want to do in that moment? What are you afraid of? I have a feeling that this is how you know someone is really wise. That even when you ask for their advice, 
They might give you some suggestions, but they also ask you more questions. They help you find the answer that is really calling to you and to your heart. And that's what we're going to try to do with this message series this spring. Beth, different Beth, Beth, our ministerial intern, introduced it last week. It's called What Would Blank Do? And in this series, each week we're going to fill in that blank with a variety of different names, some religious figures, some secular leaders in justice or in the arts, some UU ancestors, Unitarian Universalists from the past, some not UU at all. And one person at least, one week you'll hear about someone who's not well known to anyone except for our preacher for that Sunday. And while we will hear about all these different wise people, we can't deny that the inspiration for this series, or at least the title of it, right, starts with this man, (laughs) with Jesus himself, whose picture will be up here in a minute. As long as, there we go, right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? This question that created a whole framework for Christians, for followers of Jesus, who felt that something was revealed in him and the way that he lived on the earth about how they should live. And this question has lived in our popular imagination for over a century. Now, you might not realize that the phrase goes back that far, If you're like me, you may not have realized that this question existed before those bracelets came around, right? Those bracelets that were everywhere in the early 90s. Did anybody have one? Yep, I see a couple nods. I was a tween in the early 90s, so I was right around that time where if everybody had to have it, I had to have it too. I remember having one. They were in little toy vending machines at the grocery store. They were a prize that you could win at the arcade when you handed in your skee-ball tickets. You could get a WWJD bracelet. So much for separation of church and state, right? And I had no idea really back then what that question meant. The bracelet trend was started by a youth group leader from Michigan. Her name was Janie Tinklenberg. It was just a way to engage the kids at her church. But she got the idea after she reread a much older book. It was this book called In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? Did any of you have this book? No. The book was published almost 130 years ago, in 1896, by a reverend named Charles Sheldon, Perhaps not who you would expect. He was a self-proclaimed Christian socialist. Yeah. He was a cousin in many ways of our Unitarian Universalist ancestors. He was a Congregationalist minister. And the book came from a sermon series that he preached called What Would Jesus Do?, where every week he reflected with his congregation on the different issues and moral debates of his time until he finally collected and published those sermons into this book. I had no idea. This book was actually one of the 50 best-selling books of all time. It has sold over 50 million copies. And it was influential enough that Janie Tinklenberg had it on her shelf. And when she pulled it down to reread one day in 1989, she thought that question would be a good framework for her youth. 
So she printed it on a bracelet, and then capitalism and the plastics industry took over, and the rest was history. (laughs) The question underneath it, no matter who we follow or what religious path, is common to us, though, especially when we open up that blank space when we make room for all of the people who have inspired us, who have revealed something true in our lives. When we ask what they would do, what we're really doing is exploring the only question that we can really answer, right? Which is, what are we here to do? What am I here to do? Now, some Sundays in this series, like last Sunday with Beth, with her message on Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, one of our UU ancestors. Some weeks you will hear your preacher's own research and thoughts about these figures of wisdom and their inspiration for us. But for a few of these weeks, I wanted to invite a dialogue with a person who might actually live by the question that we are asking. And so today I asked a friend of mine and a local colleague the Reverend Doug Hagler, to speak with me about his thoughts on this question of what Jesus would do in our world today. Doug is a Presbyterian minister who happens to be the president of the local clergy association in Phoenixville. And I'm actually going to post the full video of our conversation. It was about 40 minutes long. That'll be on our YouTube channel. So for anyone who's curious to see more of what we talked about, that'll be there after the service. But for now, I will just share with you some excerpts of this sort of imaginative and thoughtful conversation that Doug and I had a few days ago about what he thinks Jesus would do today. Duncan, go ahead. Doug, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate you taking out the time. Um, And I wanted to invite you as a Presbyterian, as a Christian pastor, to be part of this conversation because we're talking about Jesus and Unitarian Universalists pretty famously have a wide variety of beliefs about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. So I wanted to start this conversation by asking you as a Christian, who do you understand Jesus to be? Excellent. I'm glad you started with an easy question. Um, you can breeze right through. Um, so, and I do, I want to, one thing I want to mention is that you know, as you said, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. I'm a lifelong Presbyterian. Uh, there, I'm sure there isn't as much diversity on a Sunday morning for us as there is for you of who, who or what people think Jesus is. But there is definitely significant diversity. So what you're getting is my own view and not the Presbyterian view or like right. the official view, right? Certainly not the entire Christian view. No, they didn't no, have not, a meeting not even and close. Spokesperson. Yeah, not even close. Right. Um. So, and I, as I said, I tried to narrow down my answer because I have <laughs> a lot of answers to that question. To me, there's not just one that's adequate. So, my first answer to that question is that Jesus was a person, a historical human being, uh, who had a family, who lived and grew up, who had a job. Uh, who traveled around the Roman province of Judea, um, healing and teaching and occasionally yelling at people (laughs) and, um, you know, and gathered uh, a core group around him 
and uh, was for a time very, very popular with, you know, the average, the, the common people um, and very unpopular with the powerful people. Mm-hmm. And that this person uh, was by whatever means um, executed by the Roman Empire, executed by the state and died and was put in a grave and that that was like a disaster for the followers that he'd surrounded himself with. That was a disaster for the people he'd become popular with. And that was like an apparent victory mm-hmm. for the people he was unpopular with. Right. Um, the second thing I would say about Jesus is that for me, Jesus is um, the image of God, the the best image of God. Mm-hmm. So if I want to figure out what is God like, there are a lot of ways I can do that. I could look at the world around me. I could look at the natural world. I could look at history. I could look at other people. And those are all meaningful and sources of information. I could look at other, other wisdom traditions. But for me, the the best view of who God is, what God is about, what God wants from me is in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus is that best depiction of a person whose life is full of God and a person who reflects God's intent for people the best, and the person who reflects um, God's character um, in a way that we can understand. Not an infinite being, but a person. Came here as a human. Who, right, who came here as a human. In a different way. Right. And, and, if, and if you're going to take God and make God a human um, as a way to know what God wants humans to be like, um and and on human terms, what God is like, Jesus is for me the best of those. Mm-hmm. Um, not the only. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe even not, you know, by himself sufficient. I, I don't know. I have to think about that some more. Yeah. Um, you know, because he is a person in a particular context, time period, limitations of what of his story we know, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah. Uh, third thing I'd say about Jesus is that Jesus is a pattern. So Jesus um, is described in the beginning of the Gospel of John as the Logos. Uh, Logos, uh, translating Logos as word isn't that great. I'm not a huge fan of that translation because um, there are there's a Greek word for written word that isn't Logos. There's a Greek word for spoken word that isn't Logos. Hmm. So it's not that. Um, but in Greek philosophy, the logos was like the governing principle of the universe. Right. It was like the framework everything. of everything. Right. It's the framework of everything. Yeah. Uh, if you if you boil it all down, if you strip away everything, this is what's at the 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 base function of the cosmos. And then people would argue, what is the logos? Mm-hmm. Um. So John is saying Jesus is the logos. So Jesus is a manifestation of this fundamental pattern that isn't just in him you can see it arising in other places in other ways and i think i like to think that you would discover this pattern even if there was never a roman province of judea with people expecting a messiah Hmm. i like to think that you would discover this pattern Mm -hmm. um and that might be part of how you see God in other places as well, like you mentioned, yeah. like that, that that's visible in other traditions, in other people, in other – right? Right. Yeah. So one of the things I do is I think about, you know, okay, in this cultural context, separate from that one, what would the pattern look like? Mm. It's kind of a weird question, but that's mm. one no, of the ways I very, approach it is like, yeah. 
what would the pattern look like in this place in this time? What does the pattern look like? How do you detect it? How do you figure out where the pattern is and how do you align yourself with that pattern ideally? Um, because it's not just a pattern for the cosmos. It's a pattern for human life in the cosmos. Yeah. Well, that's um, almost a, an analogous question to what would Jesus do then, right? Where do you see the pattern? Where do you see yeah. it now? Yeah, yeah, that's another way of asking a very yeah. similar thing is is where where is the pattern and how do I weave myself into it mm-hmm. so that I'm part of it? So so I hear your distinction, which I thought you might get into between, you know, there's sort of Jesus of Nazareth, maybe let's call him, Jesus the human yeah. who, mm-hmm. who lived in that particular place and time. Right. And then there's um, uh, a more mystical, may not be exactly the right word, but a, a, a bigger understanding beyond a human mm-hmm. of who Jesus is, which is kind of one of the core distinctions of Unitarian Universalism from Christianity was that generally we lean towards Jesus the man and mm-hmm. a little less towards the bigger thing. Um mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious, and you can kind of answer in both directions as we talk about this, but um, this question probably fits a little bit better if you're thinking about Jesus the man, which is, um, like, who would he actually be today, do you think? What would he do for a living? Which I think is such a fun question. Like, would he be a pastor? Um, or would he do something else, right? I, I, think it's po- I think it's possible he'd be a pastor. I mean, he yeah. was – so I, I'm, I'm assuming we're taking historical Jesus, whatever we know of him, and just yeah. porting him to the present, right? Um, like a very literal, what would he do? What would yeah, he do exa- for Yeah, living? exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I think Jesus would be, would, uh, be in some kind of labor. Hmm. Um, like economically speaking, he would be labor and not capital. <laughs> so he mm. would he – would, whatever Jesus is doing, it would be for like a paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Um, he wouldn't be – he wouldn't be an investor. Right. You know, um, he wouldn't be a crypto bro. No. Um, <laughs> <he would> be, <laughs> You know, Jesus would be um, – and maybe doing, like, physical labor mm-hmm. um, because that was, you know, almost all of his life. He had a few years as a rabbi, acknowledged mm-hmm. as a rabbi. The other 90% of his life was, you know, as a child and then as some kind of, you know, a laborer, like a contractor, mm-hmm. a builder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because a carpenter would have done a lot of different things back then just like they do today. Mm-hmm. So maybe he would do something like that. Um, how how do you think, I guess, he, he would feel today about this religiously pluralistic society that we were in? Like, how would he navigate that um, and that tension of wanting to share his message with knowing that there are other ways to understand God? Yeah, that's a good question because he – it's a totally impossible question, I realize. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, these are all, impos- these these are all, are all impossible yeah. questions. And again, you're yeah. getting you're getting my view, not the yeah. view in any means. Yeah. Um, because he lived in a religiously pluralistic society. Absolutely. Right? The Roman Empire yeah. famously didn't care what your religion was as long as you, you know, burnt some incense for the emperor on his birthday and didn't – Paid your taxes. Paid your taxes and didn't try to resist. Mm-hmm. They didn't care what you thought, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, in his life, would have been surrounded by people practicing other religions from, you know, from North Africa, from West Asia, from Europe, um, Greco-Roman, you know, religions, um, as well as Judaism. Mm-hmm. And um, and so in his case, Judaism was his focus. Mm-hmm. Like he was very focused. Like he talked to some Samaritans, but they're, you know – very much adjacent culturally. 
Um, didn't spend a lot of time debating in, in the marketplace with people of other religions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, maybe would be – if I'm answering from the, from the the standpoint of Jesus, the person, mm-hmm. I think the, the focus might be, you know, we need to look at Christianity and get this right before mm-hmm. we have anything to say to other people. Hmm. Like – if we a focus and, on his own community, right? Yeah. And like we need to look inward and be like, okay, we have some, and you know, the idea of look at the log, deal with the log in your eye before you look in the moat in someone else's eye, yeah. you know. Um, and all religious traditions have that work to do. All, absolutely, all human communities do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I could totally see him taking that tack hmm. of being like, okay, we need to fix what's going on here with us. Right. Before I have anything to say about what other people are doing in their own traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also be curious, like, you know, my my interpretation of the pattern, you know, is that true? Would, would, that, would that be some element to that as well? Mm-hmm. You know, and his public statements, would he talk about what he sees in other religions and mm-hmm. as reflecting his own priorities? Um, mm-hmm. But I could see him. we have so much work to do and – from my point of view, are so largely off the rails in a lot of ways that I think there's plenty there for a lifetime of of very hard work um, to just address how far we've drifted. Yeah. Well, there's plenty of debates amongst his followers. There's no shortage of different interpretations of what he taught that have now oh, yeah. turned into different branches of Christianity. So. Yeah, yeah, and there were arguments at the time too. Like I think that would right. be familiar. Like mm-hmm. you know, there's a strong thread in Jewish culture of like let's mm-hmm. debate this, let's argue this out. Yep. You know, that's the method of interpreting in a lot of ways is, mm-hmm. is an educated argument. Like that's mm-hmm. a dialogue. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and one way of interpreting the Bible is that it is an argument. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a discussion. That's that's one of my one of my favorite ways of interpreting the Bible is that it's an it's a conversation, sometimes an argument, mm-hmm. and then when we read it, we're invited into the argument. We're invited into the conversation. Mm-hmm. But the idea that it's it's one book with one message is crazy. You you can't have read it and come away right. with that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you can't get past <laughs> the first two chapters. Yeah. There's Wait, just there's another creation story. Yeah. There are you know answers to questions like why do we suffer and what is a good life are there's an argument about that in the text. Yeah. Um, and I think that's intentional. They could have had, they could have assembled a different text if they didn't want that. Mm-hmm. So for like a thousand years, people wanted an arguing text. And then for 2000 years, they argued about it, you know, that we have in the, in the Talmud and the Mid- Midrash. So, so the, the diversity, I think wouldn't bother him at all. It, that's, that would be home base. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the drift <laughs> from, from his priorities has been enormous. Christianity has had some mission drift. That perhaps yes, we've had real. some mission drift. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we have a lot to repent for and a lot to, you know, seek reconciliation over. Like, there's a lot. So I, I asked you a little bit about what, what you think he would be proud to see if he were living in our world today. Um, what do you think would, would maybe most break his heart about our world today? One of the things that um, gets me as an observation regularly is how how many different ways the early church was much more radical than 
the 2023 church. Um, you know, so he started this movement where uh, women had higher status than in other movements at the time that we know of. Um, that women were ordained to positions of leadership. We just we just know that for a fact. Yeah, it's not arguable. Um, you know, women were prophets. Uh, women were apostles. Women were you know patrons of the church, hosting gatherings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a movement where things were shared in common. It was communalism. You know sell your possessions and share and then find the poor and the widows and the orphans and bring them in. Right. Um, and how there is always this concern for like the status of, uh, of slaves at the time, like in the early church, um, you know, we have texts from the Roman empire mocking the early church because they, they see it as this effeminate religion because women have status and slaves have status. And they're like, what a disgusting religion like how can they even be there right so all these things that at the time were were quite radical not entirely unheard of but pretty radical and now you look at the southern baptist convention and there's none of that there there's just you know i'm just picking them up to beat up on because they're the biggest denomination and they're they've been in the news a lot lately um there's just none of that you know and in a lot of the roman catholic church and the presbyterian church it's just you know, we are still not as far along as we were in 100 CE hmm. or 200 CE, which is just, I mean, I find that devastating sometimes. I just think like, yeah. how, what is it going to take, you know? Um, and I think that would really, this could just be projection, of course, because it breaks my heart. But I imagine that would be very demoralizing to to say wow 2000 years later you've got airplanes and you know satellites and iPhones and you still have wait misogyny hold on what <laughs> what well and you have you have all of these people following me following Jesus now right but in these certain aspects they sound much more like my critics than they do like anything yeah. i ever said yeah, oh, yeah exactly like my critics yeah yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. yeah exactly like them yeah and in some ways in his time Jesus left his followers with teachings in the form of parables, um, with instructions on how to pray. He seemed concerned with kind of leaving people with a teaching that they could hold on to um, and work with in their daily lives. So if he were alive today, do you think that there would be a teaching that he would leave us with that would feel particularly vital to him um, that would be reflective of the times that we're in now because he was very reflective of the times he was in then he was paying attention Mm -hmm. to his context Mm -hmm. i wonder what you think about that i i I think that he would one of the things he would probably provide are new parables Hmm. um i'm I'm not prepared to provide one today obviously (laughs) but like um but you know just think about i mean so what um for example, in, in films, like what makes a ton of money um, are parables about good and evil. Like that's what Marvel movies are about. That's what Star Wars movies are about. I haven't seen the new Avatar movie. That's probably what it's about. <laughs> you know, the first one was very much a parable. The second one's probably a parable. It's my 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 guess. Um, Just this time with whales. Yeah, exactly. So there's so there's hunger for that. 
um, because it's a powerful way to move people. And in our, you know, in our society, we have functioning stories, functioning parables, or I guess I should say dysfunctional parables mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, I think part of why so many people are struggling, you know, uh, expressed through things like rising suicide rates, rising violence rates, um, rising mental health issues, et cetera, is that we have we have stories we're trying to live in the midst of and live out that are dysfunctional. That they're just like if you if you do everything our culture our culture generally tells you to do, you will suffer and not have a good life. That's a serious problem. That there isn't like a path that you can just go along. Because most people aren't like you and me. Most people don't have the privilege of thinking about this stuff all day and talking about it on Zoom, right? They're they're clocked in work right now. Um, so for 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 those people that don't have that privilege, like the the life that you're handed, the path that you're handed by default, is a path to destruction, you know, of the natural world, of yourself. Um, and so one of the things I think that we need are powerful stories that are different that take hold and so that a person can without putting you know thousands of hours into a seminary degree or whatever um that someone can just live a regular life and kind of you know learn wisdom from the people around them and and be okay Mm -hmm. you know and die relatively happy relatively few regrets and then some people will be extraordinary and some people will fall short, you know, but um, but it takes so much work to be human in our in our society. It takes so much extra effort, you know, to have empathy, to care for people, to remember what's important. Mm-hmm. That's not good. <laughs> That's, yeah. We can't expect that from everyone because people are they have other stuff they have to do in their life. Yeah. So what I I guess would hope for um and maybe in a large sense it falls on people who claim Jesus, you know, to provide some of these things, um, which in some ways, I, in small ways, I, I, I guess I try to do. But if Jesus was here today, I think one of the things he would provide are powerful parables that would reframe the way that we live our lives and the way we figure out what our priorities are um, that would help us, that would last, you know, the way that his original parables have lasted a very long time. Because they did that in that context, you know. Even two thousand years later, we, we still get it for most of them, um, and they're still meaningful. So, but I, some modern parables that did the same thing in our context would be very helpful. Yeah, well, and I think that is what we try to do as pastors, as religious leaders, mm-hmm. um, is is take that tradition and find the relevant ways to talk about the stories that are surrounding us now that are not helpful in our lives. The stories about make the most money that you can, the stories about um, be superior to others in this way and that way. Do anything for attention. Do anything for attention. Look a certain way. Attention is the same as a good life. (laughs) Yeah. Look (laughs) a certain way and you'll be happy on the inside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a million of those powerful stories and, um, 
yeah, I can relate to how frustrating it is sometimes to feel like our stories are so small in comparison and, and have a much smaller budget for uh, publicity yeah. than, than, the, than these big ones do. Yeah, I just – I think like, um, oh, man, the other stories have, you know, 160-some hours a week, yeah, and I get one hour, <laughs> you know, and – it's uh. yeah. well, and maybe that's like you said, you're not going to come up with one right now either. But and also maybe that's just the difference between us and Jesus or someone like Jesus. Yeah. Right. He he whatever whatever we might believe about who he is and was at the end of the day, he produced some stories that lasted 2000 plus years. Um, mm-hmm. And that says something. So and still yeah. challenge us. They're not just because there are, you know, reassuring, comfy stories that last a long time. You know, because we read them and go, but these are troubling stories and mm-hmm. challenging stories where you read them and you go, oh, I've got to work on myself or I've got to mm-hmm. I've got to do something in the world. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's amazing. Yeah. Good job, Jesus. <laughs> well done, <laughs> Jesus. You get full marks. <laughs> oh, Doug, thank you so much for talking thank with you. us today. This is a lot of fun. This has been great. I really appreciate it. I have an example of something like a parable for our modern time to close with today. And we'll, we'll actually share this as our prayer, so I'll invite our band to make their way back up on the stage. Back in December, a different colleague of mine asked us all for some suggestions of a reading or a poem in which Jesus appears in a contemporary setting. Something that answers that question of where would Jesus be if he were alive today? What would he be doing? Who would he be hanging out with? And as Doug and I talked about, there are a million possible answers to those impossible questions. Probably as many answers as there are people like you and me who want to weave themselves into this pattern of God, holiness, love, whatever we call it. But one of the answers when my colleague asked for suggestions, was this poem that I have been saving until today to share with you. It's by a 26-year-old transgender poet named Jay Hume. It's called Jesus at the Gay Bar. I'll read it to you. He's here in the midst of it, right at the center of the dance floor, robes hitched up to his knees to make it easy to spin. And at some point in the evening, a boy will touch the hem of his robe and beg to be healed, beg to be anything other than this. And Jesus will reach his arms out, sweat damp, weary from the dance. He'll cup this boy's face in his hand. And he'll say, my beautiful child, there is nothing in this heart of yours that ever needs to be healed. The paradox, of course, as in any parable, is that the not healing is healing in this case. The healing is in whatever that boy thought needed to be fixed, instead being shown love. So as we move through this series this spring, I hope that you all might start to see that even yourself who might just be trying to get through the day, 
your busy, struggling self still has the power to carry love wherever you go in the world. That even in all your imperfections, you can still see the beauty and love and pattern show up in another person in a way that might show them something true and meaningful that might reveal something to them that is life-saving. May it be so. And may you live in blessing. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.